Hi everyone, welcome to the very first episode of Activate Ayurveda, where we aim to activate Ayurveda for the Western world by bringing it in conversation with science, modern living, and Western medicine. Today's guest is Dr. Christian Kessler. I wanted to bring Christian on because he's done some of the strongest work creating scientific evidence that Ayurveda is effective and works, which is something that's valuable both for people that are new to Ayurveda and want to see that the system, you know, actually functions and actually works, and also helps integrate Ayurveda with our modern medical system by creating evidence that it's effective. Christian is a researcher at Charité Berlin University of Medicine, and in addition to being a medical doctor, has extensive training in Ayurveda. He's conducted a number of clinical trials on Ayurvedic treatment, some of which actually show that the Ayurvedic treatment is more effective than conventional Western medicine, for example, for osteoarthritis. Uh, all around, he's pushing a very important frontier for the future of Ayurveda and modern healthcare as a whole. And with that, I will let the interview speak for itself. All right, Christian. Well, thank you so much for you know agreeing to be interviewed and agreeing to be on this podcast. I'm pretty excited to talk to you and hear about your background and your perspective on IBS as well. Yeah, thank thanks for having me on your show. Totally. Well, I think the good place to start would be if you could talk a little bit about your background. You know, how did you get interested in Ayurveda? How did you begin learning? How did you eventually start conducting research? What's been your story? I think my initial contact to Ayurveda was my interest in, in Indian culture or South Asian culture. So it, it, it wasn't Ayurveda only or preferably in the beginning. It was more a, a genuine interest in South Asia and spent a lot of time traveling through South Asia, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and then India as a young adult. And before that, I had always been a genuine interest in Asia from my family side, so we frequently had, had visitors in from different countries, and from, from China, from India, from all over the place. So I was introduced to Asian cultures from a very early age on. And then this particular interest in, in Indian culture arose from an early adulthood age on. And then I met Ayurveda, actually the first meeting with Ayurveda took place in Nepal when I was about 20 and when I got ready for, for med school and in, in Germany you have to do a prerequisite for, for med school where you have to do an internship somewhere and I decided to do that in Nepal at in the Kathmandu Teaching Hospital which is actually conventional medicine but while being in Nepal and while doing this internship I got to know more about yoga and Ayurveda and, and initially started to learn Ayurvedic massage in, in, in Kathmandu and then bought books at Pilgrim's Bookstore, which is a very famous bookstore in, in, in Kathmandu and they have a nice restaurant where I spent a lot of time sitting down and reading books on, on Ayurveda and yoga and that was my, my starting point. And then, you know, it gradually took up speed and, and, and intensity and I got more interested in it and then eventually took a semester off from, from university to go to Sri Lanka and to do a six-month internship in a hospital of Ayurveda in Sri Lanka in the sixth semester of med school. And when I returned, I was so 
enthusiastic about Ayurveda, you know, having seen all these successful patient stories of, of inpatients and outpatients over there that I decided to do my doctorate thesis on Ayurveda at the medical high school in, in Hanover where I studied conventional medicine. And that's what I did. And then uh, you do one thing and then all of a sudden many others appear. So, so when I was doing this, I noticed you know, it'd be good to know more about Sanskrit because the, you know, the source texts are mostly uh, written in, in Sanskrit language. And then I took up another master course in Indology, so Indian sciences alongside medical school. And, um, yeah, got, got involved with Ayurveda, yoga, Indian philosophy from, from that side as well. And that was awesome because that yeah, gave it a complete new spin and a more sort of inside spin, you know, not only reading papers and then looking at Ayurveda or, or Indian traditional Indian systems of medicine from an outside perspective, but, you know, being more and more able to, to grasp, you know, the, the essences from a more internal perspective. So that was one of the best decisions I, I ever took in my academic life to, to, do, to do that. Yeah, and then once I was done with both of these studies and, and having completed my, my medical school and the doctorate thesis and the, the master course, I ended up, you know, working in conventional medicine, and then there was a, a break for a couple of years where I had my primary my primary focus on conventional medicine, working in internal medicine, and in emergency medicine. And then in 2010, I got the opportunity to work at the Emanuel Hospital and Charité Medical University Berlin, which is continental Europe's biggest medical faculty in a department specialized on unconventional medicine, so complementary medicine, integrative medicine, traditional medicine, under uh, the guidance of uh, Professor Andreas Michelson. And, um, and then it really took off. That, that was the point where we got involved in, in clinical research on Ayurveda. He brought a lot of clinical research expertise from related fields such as yoga, uh, therapy and um, mind-body medicine, mindfulness, etc., etc., botanical medicine. But he needed somebody to to fill this gap with uh, to to fill the gap Ayurveda, and that that was my unique chance, you know, with my experience related to Ayurveda and uh, the courses I had taken in, in Nepal, Sri Lanka, India. And here in Germany, also at the European Academy for Ayurveda and elsewhere, to develop this whole setup in this direction. And then we were very lucky that we, in cooperation with partners from within Charité and also outside of Charité Medical University, so with Mark Rosenberg from the European Academy for Ayurveda, and also with Dr. Antonio Morandi from Ayurvedic Point in Milano, Italy. And in particularly with partners from Ayush and CCRIS, so from the Indian Ministry, which was then still a sub-department of the Indian Health Ministry, and now it is 
you know, as, as you're aware of, it is an independent ministry, but uh, who decided to, to support us in financing a pretty big clinical research project on multimodality complex Ayurvedic treatment for osteoarthritis of the knee in comparison to conventional standard care. Yeah, and that, that was a unique opportunity. And uh, Ayush uh, CCRS, they funded this, this clinical trial, and that was a great chance to, to perform a high-quality clinical trial on Ayurveda over here in, in, in Germany for the first time, meaning we performed a state-of-the-art RCT over here at a medical university for the first time. There had been previous uh, research attempts, you know, on, on on smaller levels, exploratory levels, and case reports, etc. But this was the first uh, larger confirmatory trial performed in, in in a European country. The results were very interesting, and we published them well, and received. Uh, good feedback and it is being cited quite frequently and, and it is of particularly interest that just recently, a few weeks back, the German Society for Rheumatology has actually cited this particular piece of research um, as a basis for re recommendations in the field of unconventional complementary medicine where they say, okay, if, if you have knee osteoarthritis patients, then, you know, you might want to consider, you might want to consider Ayurveda as a complementary form of treatment uh, for knee osteoarthritis. So, and that shows that it actually makes sense to perform such research because eventually in countries outside of South Asia, uh, research is necessary if you want to integrate anything new, particularly from the field of unconventional medicine into clinical practice and particularly into reimbursable healthcare. So after all, it was worth it. And it was not produced for the scientific community only, but well-performed research is the, the gate through which recognition of traditional medicine happens um, when it travels from its countries of origin to, for example, Western countries. So I am deeply convinced that it's very necessary that we perform top research, whether that's in the US or in Germany or Australia or wherever. If we want to make sure that uh, traditional systems of medicine find their place in healthcare systems outside of South Asia. And that might also lead to, to disappointments, you know, because research is not something, you know, where we can order something and then after a few years, you know, that what, what we want is, is being produced, you know, we might also end up with disappointments where we find that, you know, in whatever population we do research upon, it's not as effective as we would have wished uh, in, in a Western setting. But in the case of osteoarthritis, it was interesting to see that we actually saw a decent response uh, when compared to conventional conservative guideline care. And we saw that uh, it's also sustainable. Yeah, very encouraging results. And uh, we're going to be talking about this irritable bowel syndrome uh, exploratory trial as well. Um, but the trial on osteoarthritis is... The, is 
I would say the best piece of clinical research we have produced so far because it's it's not an exploratory design but a head-to-head comparison to conventional guideline care uh, in a confirmatory uh, way so you know that's not pilot data but this data is, is pretty robust I mean it's only one trial and it's not a systematic uh, review it's not a meta-analysis but it's one RCT with all its benefits and limitations but you know that is pretty robust uh, clinical trial data and we need more of that kind of trials coming out of uh, the US and in Europe and in other countries because eventually and this is my experience is that you know if we want to get things happen outside of South Asia we need to produce evidence from over here as well and this is what the stakeholders from insurance companies from you know the medical boards politics etc is what what they demand and then i have learned uh, and also changed my mind to 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 a certain degree um, after having had so many discussions with stakeholders that it actually makes sense to do so because you know when traditional medicine migrates to other countries outside you know of its countries of origin many things have to be reconsidered you know a different population different settings different contexts different people etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and also different regulatory frameworks dif- you know for example different uh, laws related to botanical therapies etc cetera, etc cetera. You know, all this has to be considered in, in study setup, study methodology, study designs. So it actually does make sense to, 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 to do this research and to not only say, okay, this has been here for 2,000 years or 3,000 years and, you know, it, you know, it was channeled by the, the, by the rishis and we have the Charaka Samhita and the Sushruta Samhita, you know, those are all given facts. So why do we need research? Yeah. And that's a hardcore position that, you know, is not very helpful when you want to convince relevant uh, decision makers and stakeholders in the healthcare system, for example, in the U.S. or on state levels, or wherever you look at. So research is a good thing to do Definitely. if you want to get a message across and if you want to evolve uh, this field uh, further down the road. Definitely. I mean, it's it's really interesting to hear about your background and the way that you got to Ayurveda. I think it's very uh, unconventional in, in, in its approach. Well, I guess most people's approaches to Ayurveda are unconventional at this point in the West. Um, and I think I totally agree with you on the, the, the importance for clinical research, actually proving efficacy of Ayurveda, especially proving if you can prove efficacy of superiority to the Western standard of care, a really compelling case for moving Ayurveda into the mainstream. So I really like what you're doing with your clinical research. I'm, I'm glad that I got acquainted with your work. Uh, So maybe we can shift a little bit into talking about your work on IBS and your perspective on IBS. The first big question is, what's the Ayurvedic view on IBS? How is it caused? How is it treated? And how does that differ from the Western view? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the fundamental difference is that from the perspective of Ayurveda, IBS is not so organ-centric. Um, and not so focused on macro, micronutrients, etc. But the explanation happens more on a functional level. So in, in Ayurveda, two very relevant factors needs to be discussed when we talk about 
an Ayurvedic approach for what we call irritable bowel syndrome in, in the West. You know? Of note, we do not always see 100% overlap between conventional diagnoses and traditional diagnoses. And that's a common misunderstanding, you know, that we think, okay, it is called IBS in the West, and then there is a, a term in Ayurveda on Chinese medicine that is equivalent to IBS, sort of a Sanskrit word. And that's sometimes the case that we see very close approximations. For example, in osteoarthritis, there is a term called Sandigatabata, which relates well to osteoarthritis. But then there are different diseases where the, the overlap between diagnostic entities is not 100%. And that also relates mm -hmm. to IBS. So we have to look at our patients, you know, with the Ayurveda perspective. And, and that might give us different Ayurvedic diagnoses. For, for people that would have the same Western diagnosis, for example, IBS, when they come to a conventional physician. So, and um, just to give you a few examples, when, from my perspective and also in the, you know, in the Ayurvedic fraternity, you know, when we talk about IBS, two things are almost always of relevance. And it's Agni, you know, the principle of digestion and metabolism. And then the other big issue is a, uh, is a dysregulated functional principle that is called Vata Dosha in, in, um, in Ayurveda. So usually one or the other, or in most cases, both of them, both of these functional principles are uh, dysregulated and uh, need to be taken care of in uh, a multimodality therapeutic approach. And... Um, but the constellation or the specific focus, you know, what's more important in the individual case, you know, might be quite different. And it might be that with one patient, we work more on Agni and with other patients, we talk more about how we can regulate and then balance Vata uh, uh, driven process uh, that is, you know, responsible in that individual case for what the patients, uh, the IBS patients experience uh, per their symptoms. But nevertheless, you know, Agni and, and uh, Vata are almost always, you know, a subject when we talk to our uh, IBS patients. And I see. When, when we talk about Agni in IBS, it's usually a weak or an instable Agni. So the digestive principle uh, called Agni and in Sanskrit, it's usually not functioning well in, in IBS patients. And uh, that's called uh, Agni Mandya or Manda Agni. And, mm -hmm. and that needs to be treated. And, uh, uh, and that can be treated well and then foremost uh, with a individualized nutritional strategy where the target is to enhance the function and the capacity of our individual uh, digestive uh, capacity that is labeled Agni in, in, in Sanskrit and in Ayurveda. I so um, so then, the, then the question is, I guess, for patients that want to incorporate Ayurveda into their treatment plan, do you have top three pieces of advice that they could take away if they don't necessarily oh, yeah. have access to an Ayurvedic physician? What would you suggest? Yeah, there's the, the three biggest things that need to be considered are uh, that IBS patients should prefer warm foods. So try to not have raw foods, um, 
salads, etc., um, cold foods, whatever that may be. So I prefer warm foods. Then um, the second key message for IBS patients when it comes to nutrition is adhere to a regular diet and try to install a rhythmic nutritional lifestyle. Yeah. So, and that helps the organism to get used to nutritional rhythms. And it's just uh, easier for the organism to, to cope with whatever we eat when we adhere to a regular nutritional lifestyle. So regularity and rhythm is the number two. And the number uh, three is uh, prefer easy to digest, light and freshly prepared foods. So take care that the quality of whatever you eat is maximized and uh, make sure that whatever you eat um, is light to digest. But that does not mean you know, that it's a low caloric food, but uh, light to digest means is that, that you want to make sure that whatever you eat, you know, is, is easy uh, for the organism to digest. So warm, regular, and easy to digest. Those are the three uh, major things to consider for IBS patients. And that will be communicated to each and every IBS patient that, uh, that we see here in our um, department. I see. Okay. Well, thank you for, for leaving us with some really good pieces of advice for people. I, I hope that people are able to hear that and take some value away from that. Thank you so much, Christian, for making the time and talking about Ayurveda and IBS here. It's really great to have you. Yeah. Thank you for having me and um, all the best to you, Kush. Thank you. Thank you.